0: Hello and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. Sorry we've been gone for a while, had some stuff going on, had to take care of, but we're back now for podcast number 24. And we're gonna continue our journey with one of my favorite cycling books lately, and of all time, called The Beautiful Race, The History of the Giro d'Italia by Colin O'Brien. We're gonna talk a little bit about Fausto Coppi and Gino Bartali in kind of part three of probably a part four four-part uh, reading out of the book and some commentary about that and we are also going to talk today about one of our least favorite things as bicycle mechanics and that is stolen bicycles so let's let's get into it a little bit let's start off with uh, stolen bicycles. so even if you're not a bicycle mechanic uh, you've most likely uh, had some experience uh, with a stolen bicycle um, from a mechanics uh, view uh, we can often tell when we're working on a bicycle that has been stolen um, some of the telltale signs are the whole bike has been spray painted one color usually all of it the entire bike's been painted and when i mean all of it i say all of it as in tires rims your rim braking surface pads well you kind of get the picture the whole thing um Sometimes uh, one of the other telltale signs is a, a strange mix-match of parts that are definitely out of place. Uh, some examples of that would be two completely different wheels, uh, sometimes even different sizes. Um, different types of shifters, brakes, crank sets, and pedals that don't really seem to go together. Um, those are all kind of the signs that we notice right away as bicycle mechanics. Uh, obviously, another one would be a serial number that's been filed off. That one's uh, kind of a big red flag for us. I, I personally, as a as a mechanic, hate working on uh, bikes that are obviously stolen. Um, the The current owner often is not the one who has has stolen the bike, but uh, when they buy a, a two thousand dollar bike on Craigslist or some other online selling service for250 dollars or so it's it's very clear that uh, they now own a bike that has been stolen and w- one of the things about dealing with a stolen bike is you know that, that the bike's been taken away from its rightful owner and that that kind of really kind of pisses me off um, having had a couple bikes stolen from me um, It just isn't fun knowing these facts, um, that someone's dealing with this when I have this bike in the stand. Um, So once, a long time ago, we rented a house, my wife and I, uh, with a detached garage. Uh, The garage was about 100 yards from the house. Uh, One morning, I was headed out to the garage to get on my bike and head to work. Uh, When I noticed the door was open, the back door. Um, My heart kinda sank a little bit. I knew I closed and locked the door the night before. Uh, I had seven bikes hanging in the main garage with a cable lock through them. Uh, I checked them all um, and they were all still there. Um, I also had a kind of a blanket hanging in front of it so that when the garage door was open, uh, if you looked into the garage door, you couldn't see all these bikes kind of hanging there. Um, All you could see was a a, a carpet, a piece of carpet sitting there hanging. in the in the shop room of the garage, I would hang my light speed mountain bike. It was a light speed, I believe it was a Okoe at the time, 26 inch wheels back then. Uh, it did have a full XTR group, uh RockShock Sid. Um it had some nice carbon uh handlebars. And I had finally dialed in the fit on this bike. Uh it was an amazing ride. And yes. It was gone. It had been stolen. Uh, the, the really sad part was that the thief left the bike uh, they were riding. It was a shitty trek with the seat up super high. Um, my light speed was, would be way too small for them, for this person, but they probably parted it out and didn't really know what it was worth. Um, at the time, it was probably worth between 3000 and $4,000. And this is in, I believe, like 2004 or five maybe. So looking back, um, the worst part, besides the feeling violated, which you don't really get over, is that uh, no one will ever ride that bike again the way that, I, that, the way that it was meant to be ridden. And it, that kind of made me really sad. And as a side note, it's, it's important to have um, some record of the serial number of all your bikes so when or if this happens to you, you can give the police that info in case your bike is recovered. Um, so many stolen bikes uh, do eventually get recovered, but with a, a serial number not re- not reported, they never uh, get reunited with their owner. So a, a friend of mine once um, a while back owned a really nice specialized dual suspension mountain bike uh, worth a lot of money and, and he had it stolen from his garage. Um, he was very upset. Uh, beyond reporting it there's not much you can do Uh, you can you can go around town and see if you see someone riding your bike but the chances are that's just not gonna happen so he would um, check Craigslist weekly just in case his bike showed up on there Uh, he had kept all his records on this bike such as serial number sales records of all the upgrades he had made over the years which were numerous then one day, while checking Craigslist, bam, it was there. For sale, light speed. Oops, sorry, not light speed. For sale, specialized. <clears throat> he couldn't believe it. Pretty much looked like his bike, but he couldn't be sure. He contacted the seller and arranged to see the bike and seller in person. The meetup happened the next day, and not surprisingly, it was just down the street from his house. So he headed to the the address with all of his sales receipts and records in hand. When he arrived, the bike was presented to him, but the bike had been somewhat disassembled, but it was all there. So my friend confronted the seller once he verified it was indeed his bike. He showed all the records, and the seller then said that he had purchased it from a friend, (laughs) and at the time didn't feel great about it so he decided to sell it interesting when confronted with proof of ownership the seller gladly gave the bike back little suspect there uh, I certainly don't advise conf- advise confronting a person selling your stolen property in this case but it all worked out in this case I was never known it was never known if the seller was indeed the original bike thief or just a salesperson or if his story was really true so that, once again, I don't advise confronting these people, but this is one of those stories that you just don't hear very often, and I really wanted to share that one. Um, so another story, the, the first bar- bike shop that I ever worked at was in Half Moon Bay, California, and there was a time when many bicycles were, be- were being stolen in the area. A good friend to the shop and a shop patron had his Ritchie mountain bike stolen from from his home and, it, and he was really upset. This was uh, kind of an early Richie that I believe probably was made by Tom and it was um, a full rigid mountain bike. So this was kind of back in the day, but it was a beautiful bike. Um, and over time he had heard about all the local bike thefts and, and eventually found out that the local, that a local apartment had a tenant who had many bicycles on the porch and they were always changing. Um, to say, not the same bikes on the porch from one week to the next. They were always kind of being shuffled around. So he called the police and they went to check it out. Busted. Turns out all, the group, all, all it was, it was a group stealing bikes locally and putting them in a box truck and driving them to Southern California to sell. My friend didn't get his bike back, but the thieves were caught and their operation came to an end. So I, I often thought that that even if I gave this, the police the serial number of my stolen bike, it wouldn't matter because they aren't going to check all those serial numbers on the bike that, on the bike if they recover it. I was wrong. So a different shop that I worked at years later once uh, had to have an offsite storage unit to house all the excess bicycle inventory we had at the beginning of the summer season. Um, One day while retrieving some bikes uh, in boxes from the unit, I noticed a white van with three men loading built used bicycles into it. One guy had a bike upside down and was writing down the serial numbers on a pad and a clipboard. So I asked what they were up to. Turns out they were cops who had just busted a bike thief group storing their loot in a storage space before selling them. Sadly, my light speed was not there. And not, not to say maybe it was just before the group had busted, had been busted. Maybe it went through that group and it was gone. Bottom line is bicycle thieves suck. Stealing sometimes very expensive bikes and selling them for pennies on the dollar often. If a bike onli- is online for sale, seems to be too good of a deal, it probably has been stolen. So my advice to you is to leave it alone. It's really bad karma to buy a stolen bike. So let's move on to talk a little bit more about the Giro d'Italia and about uh, Fausto Coppi and and Gino Bartali. He wasn't to know it, but Bartali's future would be inextricably linked to another boy, 300 kilometers to the north. Born five years later than Gino, Angelo Fausto Coppi came into the world on the 15th of September in 1919, the fourth of five children to Angelina and Dominica. His parents had moved south to a small town of Castellania from Cunaro Soto, a village not far from Lake Lake Migior, to work the land. The family were poor. Like so many others, the children almost certainly malnourished. Fausto grew up thin with a crooked gait, and a gaunt expression that would give no hint of athleticism. Agriculture labor was not for him. And at 13, he found a job in Novo Ligure, the nearest major town, as a delivery boy for a delicatessen. The town happened to be home to Constantine Giordano, the prototype champonissimo, and according to legend, his villa was one of young Fausto's stops. Whether there's any truth to the myth or not, it's a little, of little consequence, while making the rounds with a heavy old bicycle laden down with groceries, Kopi fell in love with cycling and found perhaps the only thing in the world to which his gangly, fragile frame was perfectly suited. Standing, his long legs, peculiar posture and barreled chest looked strange, but in the saddle he was like a man transformed into a picture of elegance. At 15, his uncle and namesake, a sailor, upon returning from sea, sea gave Fausto 520 lire as a gift. And with it, he, th- he, he bought a Meno racing bike and began to compete locally and attract attention in the cycling mad Novi Ligure. The one link to the retired champion, Giordano, f- was formative to Coppi's career. His meeting with Biagio Cavana, at the time one of Italy's most respected trainers and masseurs. Biagio was a hulk of a man with a big reputation to match. He worked with Giordango and Binda, and by the mid-1930s was looking for the next generation's great hope. Cavana was famous for his demanding training regimes and later, after going blind, for his dark glasses and the way in which he seemed to see more with his hands than many could see with their eyes. The pair formed an immediate and intimate bond. And f- from that moment until Kopi's death, Cavana was rarely far from his side. When Kopi raced as an independent in 1939, the signs were promising. The teenager swept to victory in a host of small early season events before making his debut among the most among the professionals at the Giro di Toscana that April. He retired because of a mechanical and most likely went completely unnoticed by the winner and local favorite, Gino Bartali. Gino's professional career had begun five years earlier with fireworks. The 1935 Giro was to be the last for the race's first truly great champion, Alfredo Binda, and the debut of a little-known Tuscan, two months shy of his 21st birthday, who would go on to have profound effect a profound effect on not just Italian cycling, but on Italian society as a whole. At the time, the race's seventh day seemed more remarkable for the fact that it was, a pivotal, that it was pivotal to Vasco Bergameschi's overall victory. The 26-year-old Lombard had, had begun the race in the service of the once formidable Lero Guerrera, who was ultimately unable to defend his title from that year before. Bergamaschi, up until that point, had trailed the Rosa Giuseppe Olmo, twice winner at Milan San Remo, but more famously in Italy for his, for his bicycles, but overturned the lead with an impressive ride to L'Aquila. More impressive still, however, was the performance of, a, of the stage winner, the unheralded Bartali, who arrived at the line solo having led for much of the day. Putting almost two minutes into his rivals on the Passa del Campanella through the Alpines. It was exactly the kind of audacious attack for which Gino would become so famous. In the same season, he made the podium at the Giro di Lombardia and won the Italian national championships. Not content with that, Bartoli raced and won in Spain, too. His Giro triumph in 1936 caused a sensation across the country when he took control of a brutally hard stage, nine, with a savage solo attack on the first climb. Once free, he never let, let up and finished six minutes ahead of anyone else in La Cuida. Having wrought havoc on the race and disposed deposed Giuseppe Olmo, taking from him the Maglia Rosa, he held on to the lead all the way to Milan, winning two more stages. It was, incredible, it, it was an incredible success. But no one that Giro could save her. No one that Gino could save her. His brother, Giulio, died in a crash while racing in Tuscany just nine days later, an event that would have an irre- irredeemable effect on Bartali, almost leading him to retire from racing and almost certainly intensifying his already staunch Catholic beliefs. After much soul searching, he c- he continued and changed a changed man, but as powerful as ever. The Giro was again in 1937 with four stages along the way, as well as a stage of the Tour de France, another in Lombardia, his second national championship and an array of other races. In 1938, he became Italy's second winner at the Tour de France. So while the 1939 Giro del Toscana was the pair's first contest, the two riders at that point lived in very different worlds. It wouldn't be long, however, before Baltali would, would have to take notice of his young rival. Having in, impressed the management at Gino's Legnano Lega- team, Coppi was quickly signed up as a gregario with the idea that he would make an able assistant to their Tuscan cap- captain. Fausto, subordinate to no one, had other ideas. A week after Germany began its invasion of France, the 28th Giro began in Milan. For obvious reasons, the peloton was almost exclusively Italian, with the winner of the last two editions, Bianchi's Giovanni Valletti, expected to be Bartali's main rival. But on the second stage, Bartali came undone, crashing badly at the Passo del Scofora after hitting a dog. Bullish as ever, he remounted and chased the peloton but arrived in genoa more than five minutes behind the winner piero farvali even injured overturning such a lead wasn't beyond Bartali, who was after all two time giro winner in the reigning italian national championship but there was another pavel and lignano head team had turned into a dream, albeit a brief one. The day after the Giro's finale, Mussolini marched his his soldiers into France and Italy, was plunged into war. Kopi was conscripted for service before the 28th Giro had even begun, but his regiment gave him a deferment to allow him to compete, and upon his return to barracks, the magnanimity afforded to cycling's rising star endured. The, reg- the regime in Italy was keen to keep up appearances at home and pushed for the continuation of sporting events right up to Miss- Mussolini's arrest. But holding a three-week stage race like the Giro that covered thousands of kilometers and, cu- and consumed huge fuel and food resources was impossible. Smaller events carried on and Copi continued to race, beating Bartali in 1941 Giro de Toscana and the 1942 national championships before setting a new hour record of 45.798 kilometers on 7th of November at Milan's Vigorelli, an event that the organizers timed to avoid the usual Allied bombing raids that had already damaged the velodrome. The day after Allied troops began Operation Torch in Morocco and Algeria, and at that point, Corporal Fausto Coppi of the 38th Infantry Regiment at the Ravana Division received his orders. He was bound for the African front. In Tuscany, meanwhile, Bartali stayed out of the war, and on the face of it, out of politics. He continued to train, spending long days in the saddle, crisscrossing Tuscany on its web of craggy white gravel roads. Gino was probably the most famous man in Italy at that point, after Mussolini, and fame, coupled with his close connection to the Catholic Church, meant that few people were willing to risk the inevitable backlash that would come from harassing him. Little did they know that those ponderous rides had a purpose. Bartali had been approached by the Cardinal of Florence, Archbishop Ella della Costa, who gave him a mission to secretly smuggle documents in the seat tube of his bicycle, destined for a, ne- destined for a network of partisans in Assisi who were using them to save the lives of Jewish families. By securing documents for a safe passage between the Repubblica Social Italia the puppet state run by the Nazis in the north of the country and the allied controlled south, hundreds of people escaped to freedom. His involvement was to remain a secret for decades, even in his family, and it was only in his final years that Bartoli eventually opened up about it. In 2013, 13 years after after his death, the state of Israel declared him righteous among the nations. Fausto spent most of his time in Africa, as a British prisoner of war, followed by a stint as a driver working for the RAF in Naples. Upon his release, he found that his parents had invested his savings in war bonds while he was away, so he returned to, a normal, to normal life a poor man. He initially returned to racing locally, competing in Campania and Lazio, before riding his bicycle back to, to Castanaglia on his own through the wreckage of a country laid low by Allied bombing and a bitter civil war. To many, Coppi was a post-war Italy of microcosm, an unwilling soldier forced to fight someone else's war and now left alone to pick up the pieces. But he was also a superstar, the winner of the Giro d'Italia, robbed of some of the best years by the conflict. That dichotomy made him irresistible. He was at the same time both otherworldly and one of their own. So if hearing some of that doesn't give you chills, I don't know what would. Um, the relationship between these two continues in, uh, in the rest of this chapter, which we will uh, get to next time on the podcast. But in the meantime, I'd like to thank you for joining me today at the bicycle, on the Bicycle Mechanics podcast. I am your host, Matt Taini and I'm going to say goodbye for a couple weeks. Thank you so much for listening.